So DealQuest listeners and viewers, I am so excited to have Peter Nesfold on an upcoming episode of DealQuest. Peter, what are folks going to hear about on your episode? Thanks, Corey. Well, hopefully you'll hear uh, some of my thoughts about how to institutionalize your financial advisory practice, number one. And number two, what's the future of the wealth management industry? I'm really looking forward to it, Corey. Yeah. And folks, listen, I mean, for, uh, many of you probably know Peter or know of Peter, but, you know, with his background, you know, as a, as a, as a lawyer and accountant, and CFA and, uh, you know, with one of the premier investment banking firms and, you know, and, and, uh, and advisory firms for many years and now, uh, you know, doing his own investment, his, um, you know, his, his input's going to be invaluable. And, uh, you know, you're going to hear some cool stuff about what he sees in, in terms of the trends and how he decides to make investments in different firms. So check him out. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. DealQuest listeners and viewers, I am so excited to have Peter Nesvold as the guest this week on the DealQuest podcast. Peter is the founder of Nesvold Capital Partners, a merchant bank that specializes in the asset and wealth management industries, which most of you know I do a lot of stuff in. So prior to starting NCP, he was a partner at Silver Lane Advisors, uh, which he co-founded with his wife, Liz Nesvold. Silver Lane was one of the most active M&A advisors in the wealth management space, representing clients with an aggregate assets of nearly 300 billion, that's with a B folks, billion over 12 years before the firm was sold to Raymond James in 2019. And listen, anybody who's in the RA space knows that um, Silver Lane was really, uh, you know, a prominent uh, investment banking, consulting and valuation firm. Uh, by way of background, Peter's a lawyer, a CPA and a CFA a charter holder. He's an investor in two RIAs, Stratus Wealth and Pure Financial. Outside of work, he's written four, yes, count them, four M&A books, books on M&A. He teaches corporate finance at the Gabelli School of Business at Fordham uh, University, and he previously served on the board of the CFA Society of New York. So he's got absolutely no credentials. I have no idea why I'm having him on the podcast. <laughs> Peter, welcome. Thank you, Corey, and uh, thanks for reading that bio. Man, you know, I grew up, I'm a civil guy from a farm. I grew up on a farm. And when I when I hear that bio, it sounds like, wow, who's that person he's describing? It sounds really terrific. And I thought, oh, that, that's that's me, I guess. <laughs> you know, you and I have, I mean, I we have nothing in common in that I didn't grow up on a farm, but we do have that sort of feeling in common because I, I grew up as a low and middle class kid in Brooklyn, you know, and like never... Never thought, you know, that everything I've done in my life, I would have would have done. So yeah, I know the feeling. I know the feeling. Um, so, Peter, before we jump into all this great experience you have and, you know, what's going on in the wealth management, M&A, you know, financial services space, I want to take you back to when you were a, a kid growing up, 8, 10, 12 years old. 
what did you want to be? Because my guess is, um, you know, investment banker, merchant banker, whatever, as a farm, you know, growing up on a farm might not have been it. <laughs> but you, <laughs> you know, it's actually funny you ask that. I don't get asked that question very often. And uh, I actually remember it was a few years after that where I was asked that question. I was actually out on one of my very first dates. And, uh, and, and, and the girl asked me that, what do you want to do when you, uh, when you grow up? And I still remember the answer. I said, I either want to be an accountant, a lawyer, or a stockbroker. And, <laughs> and this is sort of like the mid, early 1980s. So I didn't really know what a stockbroker was. I just kind of knew something about stocks and it's kind of cool and it's on TV. And now when I look back, you know, I've actually sort of done all three of those things. So, you know, I don't know that I'm Preston or anything, but uh, but that was the way that it worked out. That's funny. And I was, you know, for those of us in the industry who uh, understand the designations that we read in your bio, we're sort of a, a step ahead of uh, what you just said and those who weren't might not have been. But that's exactly right. I mean, you know, <laughs> um, that's amazing. And what uh, one other question, thinking back, uh, what was your first deal of any type? It could have been when you were a kid, a little older. Like, what's the first thing that comes to mind that you would consider any kind of deal? Well, I'd say the first deal of significance was uh, WorldCom, MCI and British Telecom. So it was my very first day as an attorney and uh, I was getting dressed up. Um, I had CNBC on and I see this news flash that said that WorldCom had ho- had launched a hostile bid for MCI Communications. I thought, this is really cool. And I was going in for my first day at a law firm called Sherman and Sterling. I was starting in the mergers and acquisitions group, uh, very excited. Uh, I get to work, I'm in front of the assignments partner and the partner in charge of the British Telecom account came bursting in and he says, Claire, you're not gonna believe this. We just got a hostile bid for, uh, for MCI. And I said, Oh, yeah, it's WorldCom. Bernie Ebers is the CEO. This is the way they're planning to structure it. And and this is the rationale. They looked at me like, you know, where did this guy come from? It just so happened I had watched CNBC that morning. You know, it's before the Internet really took off. So I would say that was my first deal of of significance. And I learned a really important lesson on that deal. Um, International deals are totally, totally blown out of proportion. Uh, Because when you're in the U.S. and your client is in, in, in London, you're doing calls at five in the morning, right? <laughs> and it's not really how you want to spend the, you know, the first years of your, uh, of your career as an attorney. So that was my first international deal as well. And, uh, and it took a few years before I was willing to do another. <laughs> I love it. Oh, yeah, I remember, I remember those days uh, working around the clock at big law firms in my early days as well. But uh, at least, listen, it was a great experience, right? <laughs> it really was, exactly. Yeah. All right. So, so tell us um, about uh, a little bit more. I mean, we read it a little bit in the bio, but, you know, in terms of what you're doing now and what your focus is and, you know, and, and, and what you're looking for and, and really why, you know, why you started the firm, you know, what, what did you see was the opportunity there that you wanted to take advantage of or the space you wanted to play in? Yeah. You know, I think um, selling Silver Lane was the right outcome for the business. Um, The partners had different perspectives on how to grow uh, the the firm. We also saw the industry changing a lot. We saw private equity coming into the industry. As private equity comes in, we knew the bulge bracket would follow. And our perspective was that being a boutique historically was a big advantage, but could actually be a disadvantage at some point in the future. Um, I fulfilled my my restrictive covenants, my obligations for Raymond James, 
But one thing, you know, I kept coming back to was the fact that even as Silverlane and then particularly as Raymond James, we were pressured to increasingly go up market. And we got to a point where, you know, the minimum deal size was at least $750,000 in terms of fees, maybe a million dollars or more. And what I concluded was that the types of RAAs that really need the assistance are those between 500 million in assets and 2 billion in assets. And that's really not the, uh, the size that, uh, that Raymond James was looking for. So as much as I enjoyed my time working at Raymond James, I really wanted to get back to, uh, to owner operators to entrepreneurs and working with a lot of those smaller firms. So that was really the genesis of the business. That's great. And so uh, talk to me about um, what kind of firms, I mean, obviously you mentioned size already, right? But uh, you know, what are their other needs and what are you, I mean, obviously provide capital, what, what else do you provide? Uh, you know, I assume there's also some strategic support and things like that, right? Yeah, exactly. So I look for firms that are trying to go through that institutional change. Um, they may have built a successful practice, um, but they don't know quite how to institutionalize it into being a, a real business. Um, it takes a real street fighting mentality to start something from nothing. So, I mean, I have extraordinary um, um, uh, you know, appeal for an entrepreneur who can start an RAA and get it to $750 million in assets. It's a different skill, though, to get to $2 billion or $3 billion and then hopefully $10 billion one day. And so that's really what I bring to the table, having seen hundreds of RAAs over the last 12 years from the inside, but also having gone through my own entrepreneurial cycle uh, from startup to exit to starting a new firm again, you learn a lot of things the hard way. <laughs> and I, my goal is to help people not make the same mistakes that I made along that way. Yeah, totally. So let's talk a little bit about that, what it takes to make that jump, right? Because that is, you know, that is a key part. And this is a concept that applies across industries, right? You know, uh, Seth Golden wrote about the dip, you know, there's all these books out there in general business books where, you know, you, and also even that, uh, the difference that you talked about in terms of the entrepreneur that can build something from nothing. And then, you know, when you, once you get it to a point, the ability to scale it, management, whatever, right? Those are common, but then there's also some specific things, you know, in the RA space, in the wealth management space that also make it, you know, make it interesting. So what it, what is the difference? What do firms need to do to make that jump from that, you know, organic growth, or even maybe they did a couple of talk-ins, whatever it is, you know, uh, whether it's organically, deal-wise, management-wise, systems, you know, all of those things that have to happen. What is it that gets those firms from, from 750 to 2 billion plus? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think if you were to ask most RIAs what differentiates them versus their competitors, they're going to say two things. Number one, it's our people and it's, and it's our culture. And if you were to ask me what gets you from 750 to 2 billion, it's your people and it's your culture. <laughs> and, you know, in succession planning, we often talk about, you know, you need to start your succession plan a good five years before you actually want to transact. I actually take it back to day one. Yeah. And by succession planning, I don't really mean uh, I want to hand the keys over to somebody else, but I want to be able to leverage my time. So most RAAs are started by one or two or maybe a very small handful of principals um, that have experience, have a great Rolodex. But in order to get to a billion dollars plus, you need to attract and retain exceptional talent that's going to help you build up that so-called pyramid of, uh, of, of professionals. And that ultimately is what, uh, what's going what's to transform the business. So recruiting is probably the area I spent the most time at. Uh, with with uh, Silver Lane um, and with portfolio companies I'm working with, it's recruiting and it's sub acquisitions. 
So it really, you know, the recruiting, uh, the recruiting wheel never really ends. And when let's break down recruiting a little bit, because obviously there's always recruiting, uh, you know, uh, people who have business, right? You know, advisors that have books of business. But when a firm grows and management has to professionalize, there's also recruiting other types of folks as well, right? Yeah, and um, it's interesting how that evolves when you're a small practice. And we went through this firsthand. When you're a small practice, what ends up happening is people wear multiple hats. Um, and you have to find people that are nimble and can do one job one day, another job another day. But as the business grows, you do need to start to compartmentalize some of these responsibilities. Yeah. And here is the challenge. That's really, really expensive because you can't hire half a marketing person. You can't hire half an IT person. You can outsource for a period some of those things, but eventually you got to bring it in-house. And so if you start to unbundle these responsibilities for the jack-of-all-trades, that's really challenging. And it takes a real commitment to reinvest back into the business to accomplish that. Yeah, and that's really that concept that, you know, Golden talks about in the dip is that, it's that inevitably what has to happen is, you know, you become, you make more and more money, you grow, you become more profitable, whatever. And then there's a point at which you almost have to take a hit temporarily, you know, on EBITDA, on, you know, what, what you're taking out as an owner, you got to reinvent because you're reinvesting, whether that's in, you know, depending upon the type of business and systems, equipment, and most often, you know, in, in, in people. Um, and then obviously there's a lag before that pays off. And if you don't do it right, <laughs> you know, so yeah, hundred percent. I totally agree with that. And, uh, and we sometimes refer to that as the Valley of death. Yeah. You have to travel through the Valley of death, which, you know, is that step back in profitability to reinvest back in the business. But once you get out of that Valley, that's when you really get the rewards. Great. Great. Um, so let, last point on the, on the sort of team and recruiting again. Um, other than, you know, the other advisors, what are the other roles that come in uh, in a firm that that goes through that valley of death uh, that they didn't need, you know, be, before? I mean, you talked about how they're broken out, but a little more specifically, what are the types of roles that you end up hiring for? So I would say a really great COO is one of the most important hires. It's one of the most difficult hires. Um, this is not somebody that's going to be directly tied to revenue. So you know, the natural inclination is to think about the person as a cost center, but you really can't think about it that way. If this person is going to free up time from the CEO, uh, from business development, in order to spend their time more on client work, it's going to be accretive to revenue. So I'd say far and away that that has been the, uh, the, uh, the, best, uh, the best hire we ever made. <clears throat> we happened to hire somebody that had a legal background as well. And I'll tell you that paid off immensely uh, because... Um, you're a lawyer. I'm, I'm trained as an attorney. We find we use these skills every single day. Uh, you know, there's contracts, there's disputes, there's negotiations. And having that kind of background is just magnificent. So, you know, if you are fortunate enough to find someone that's operationally focused and happens to have a legal mindset, it's, it's even more powerful. Great. So now when, when you're evaluating firms at this point, you know, to to make investments in um what what is the what is the criteria you know that you're looking for what what this because listen there's a lot of in this industry now which is i mean it's amazing what has changed in the last 10 15 years right i mean in terms of you know i mean i remember a time i think i've told this story before i mean i'll just you know i had a bank client that had bought a um uh, an ra firm before the financial crisis thinking that they would get into the, you know, into the investment advisory space, buy a lot of firms. 
Of course, they bought one. The crisis hit. They were a niche lender in very serious, mainly real estate. They had to go back and focus on their real estate portfolio. They left this poor RA firm, you know, in another state hanging out there, you know, alone. Um, the founder was still, you know, employed and had a minority interest. And uh, by the time they came to me, they were at the end of the contract and were in this place where, you know, they didn't know what to do with the firm. And long as, you know, I won't spend a lot of time. We ended up selling it back to, because there was the only possible real buyer because they had no, you know, but what's more relevant to this story is that what I said to them at this time, and, you know, I'm going back probably, I don't know, 12, 14 years ago, I said, you're in the wrong end of the business, right? This is, this is, I think Live Oak might've just started back then, or they were about to a couple of months later, like nobody else was forget private equity, not that there wasn't any, but there was hardly any, you know, it was even tough to find just, you know, loan capital, right? I said to them, you should be you should be financing in this space. I mean, these are great clients. They're totally bankable. Yes, they don't have hard assets, but I mean, it's you know, it's this. Uh, and uh, they actually started looking into it, and then the CEO went to another bank, and that was it. Um, but you know, what an evolution over the last. So now, um, you know, you it's pretty competitive, right? You know, you there's a lot of money. It's enormously competitive. You know, and even what I'm doing, which is minority stakes. Three, four, five years ago, or let's say five years ago, if, if a client came in the door and wanted to sell minority stake, I could probably count on one hand uh, how many uh, you know potential investors would, would truly be interested. 100%. Now it's just exploded. And, and we just saw in the last couple of weeks, Dynasty making an announcement. So here we have yet another player. And yep. Dynasty is a formidable uh, competitor, to be sure. I think from an RIA standpoint, this is a very positive development. Uh, we've seen this sort of evolution of deal structures in the wealth management industry over the last 20 years. And in the mid-2000s, what you would see is a lot of banks or brokerage firms acquiring wealth managers. It was almost always 100% deals. Yep. And then very gradually went to majority deals. And then a little bit, a few years after that, it became, well, I'll do a minority deal with a path to control. And now we're looking at uh, even temp temporary minority deals or even permanent uh, minority deals. So from an RAA standpoint, the, the reason this is really good news is it still is a seller's market. Um, there are so many different options out there. You can almost create a bespoke solution to what you're looking for. So when I sit down with a, with a firm and, and we have a conversation about whether or not I'm the right, uh, the right partner, I try to be really clear about what I bring to the table and what I don't bring to the table. I don't bring distribution, um, point blank. I don't bring infrastructure. Uh, I do bring intellectual capital, experience in the industry. I bring experience with growing a business, uh, an entrepreneurial business myself, recruiting, sub-acquisitions, et cetera. Uh, if that fits their needs, fantastic. But that's not going to be for everybody. It's not what everybody's looking for. So, you know, I'll look for a firm that ho hopefully is growing at least 20%. Hopefully it has at least 20% margins as well. I sort of call that the rule of 20. Um, you have to have some kind of financial metrics. Um, but ultimately, going back to what I said originally, a firm ready to make that jump uh, from being a practice to being a business, going through that whole institutional evolution. Love it. So let's talk about trends in the industry, right? I mean, we've already talked about some of the trends that we've seen and that are happening, you know, in recent years till now. Uh, the significant increase in private equity, the, what you just mentioned, the significant increase in, 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 a mar in minority, you know, ownership opportunities uh, and investment. Uh, you know, obviously the independence movement continues to grow. You know, I talk about all the time, just, you know, part of this is all just the maturity of the industry. I mean, 
you know, when I first started doing stuff in this industry 20 something years ago, I mean, you know, they weren't, I mean, you talk about sub acquisitions. I mean, firms were just getting there. First of all, they tended to be smaller. They were just getting their feet under them. They weren't mature enough. You know, we have a lot of breakaways now from existing RA firms. You didn't have that early on because they didn't have enough of a history for people to be there and be unhappy and look, you know, for, you know, so, um, you know, so we've seen a lot that's happened already and none of us have a crystal ball. I understand that, but, you know, based upon your experience, how do you see this continuing to evolve? Yeah, so it's that's also a really great question, Corey. So I think, and this runs counter to, I think, conventional wisdom. Um, for the last 20 years, there's been this uh, ongoing prediction that the wealth management industry is going to become barbelled, um, that you're going to have sort of mega firms, and then you're going to have really, really small boutiques, and that the middle market will be decimated. And, and actually, we've done the research, and I could show that that's actually not the case. When you look at firms between 250 million and a billion of assets, which I would define as sort of the mid-market, yep. those firms have grown over 20% over the last five years, both the number of firms and total asset size, which is about almost double the rate of firms between a billion and five billion. And so I think what's ended up happening is all of these evolutions that have happened, so whether it's technology or new financing coming in, in, in the industry, it's really empowered that middle market, that mid-size advisor to continue to thrive. And whereas, you know, if we would use research from 15 years ago, they were doomed. In fact, they're thriving today. Uh, they've never been stronger. So let me, I, I, not that I disagree with you because I don't, but let me play devil's advocate here for a second. You know, you say the last five years, of course we know we've been in a great market the last five years, right? With the exception of, was it, was it March or April last year, we had that little dip that scared everybody and then went, went back up, right? Beginning of the pandemic. What happens when the market in our next downturn, right? Um, the, you know, because the, the argument would be that, hey, you know, great. Yeah, everybody's everybody's doing fine. One of the reasons why is because, you know, it's, yeah. I remember, um, I, I, I've mentioned this a couple of times because I always laugh at it. It was, it was not in our industry, but I was at some event or seminar where they had like a panel of billionaires and they asked them what their biggest mistake was. And one of them said, and I don't remember, I, I wish I could attribute it, but I don't remember who. He said, you know, I, 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 I went bankrupt at some point and then he went, made his way back to a billion. And his mistake was that he mistook a bull market for brilliance, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was a great line, you know. Um, so everybody looks spot in a bull market, right? So what happens when the market goes down? Some people might argue that will force more of that barbell to happen. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so there's multiple things going on there. There's sort of what happens to industry fundamentals. There's what happens, you know, if you're a principal running these firms. And then there's the M&A side. And, and you're really speaking more about industry fundamentals. And this actually, I, I feel like this was proven out during the financial crisis. So the really well-managed well -managed wealth management firms actually gained assets and took market share during the financial crisis. Yeah. You know, a really well-managed wealth management firm has a diversified client base. Their assets are diversified. And so... You know, there's another saying, there's always a bull market somewhere. Right. Um, you know, if you're doing well by your client, uh, those assets should be sticky. And that's actually why I think private equities discovered this, this industry. They discovered it after the financial crisis. And I think pre-crisis, uh, private equity thought that this was some kind of levered play on the equity markets. Hmm. And we've seen this, in, you know, in, in terms of active, uh, active equity managers, you know, most of them trade at significant discounts to the market multiple because they've had negative organic growth from outflows. Not the case in wealth management. 
Uh, I will say though, that I do think that M&A activity during a downturn will definitely take a pause. Um, You know, you have the strategics which will need to tend to their own needs. Um, You're going to have private equity that still needs to deploy money. Um, That is the business that they're in. However, what you're going to have is sellers saying, well, wait a minute, I was worth nine times EBITDA uh, just six months ago. Now you're offering me seven times. And by the way, my EBITDA is lower. I'm just going to play through. I'm just going to grow back into where I was before. So the, I think there'll be a bid-ask spread during the next downturn. So m and activity will slow, but the really well-run wealth, well-run wealth managers will prove their, 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 their worth during a downturn. Yeah, and you know, and it's interesting. I mean, um, one of the things that I think was a big factor in the financial crisis, and uh, you know, and I, it's funny. I just was having a conversation about this earlier today with somebody who I was uh, getting up to speed on the industry a little bit, and I said, you know, one of the things that happened back then was that you know that was a time when people, you know, the wirehouses and banks and private banks, trust companies, you know, whatever, like you know, still had you know more of a reputation. Let's say that they do that. You know, they supposedly had the top research and they had you know, uh, the top people and, you know, and all that stuff. And then, um, you know, obviously when, you know, Lehman disappeared and Bear Stones got gobbled up and, and everybody at the other firm's portfolios were down 30 or 40% or whatever, like a lot of that mystique, you know, and that gravitas uh, disappeared. And, you know, I think that was very helpful to the independent, you know, movement and, and not, you know, and, and I think, um, you know, they, they still try to play off that. I think they're less effective, but, but in another downturn, I think, you know, it, uh, you know, unless they outperform, which is unlikely, um, you know, I think that same kind of more people will may realize the same thing. Yeah. You know, and, and I think, you know, to some degree that there's still some distrust in the public of some of the large financial institutions, but I, I think the bigger issue is how much leverage is in the system. And that clearly was the, uh, the problem back in 2008, 2009, I will say if there's one red flag that I do see in the industry right now, it is the amount of leverage that's slowly creeping into deals. Um, I think one of the reasons why the independent channel has been so successful is because they've had very conservative balance sheets. Yeah. And so when there is a downturn, you know, yes, there's a hit to profitability, but the, uh, you know, the, the, the continuity of the business is not at, uh, at risk. Start putting four times, five times, six times of leverage uh, of EBITDA leverage on these businesses, you know that becomes more of a potential risk. And so I think to me, if there's one risk into the next downturn, it's well, as Buffett says, when the tide goes out, we see who's been swimming naked. Um, you know, are some of the levered platforms? You know, how are they going to perform during the next downturn? Yeah, and listen, and you know they're not the only one. I'm not looking to pick on anybody, but just because you know, in the last year we've seen some public criticism or questioning of, for example, Focus Financial just on exactly that 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 basis, right? On the on the on their leverage, uh, you know, on the debt leverage uh, factor. So yeah, although it's funny, you know, it's four turns of leverage. I mean, that was sort of where the market would freak out. And you put that in the perspective of a lot of other highly uh, levered industries, it's not that big a deal. But right. you know, it, it's it, it that was sort of the line in the sand they drew at the IPO. And I think it's a lesson, you know, we're going to see more IPOs in the wealth management industry. And, and I think, you know, the, the focus performance in the first year out of the IPO was, was, was less than I think many had, had hoped for. But I think there were some lessons learned in that. And it's just about how you communicate with the street. Uh, fortunately, focus is back on track and they've been doing very well. In no question. No question about it. They've, they've recovered big time for that. But it was, it was a place where they got questioned, you know, so... 
Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. Just going back a little bit. So now, you know, you talked about, you know, one of the things I always talk about because of private equity firms and that need to deploy capital, right? Whether it's an up market, down market, whatever, you know, is always, and I've seen it in other industries and I've seen it, you know, here, you know, and you see, you start with banks, uh, you know, uh, at various points. Um, which is uh, deal, you know, where you, they lose deal discipline because of that, uh, you know, need to deploy capital, and um, and um, you know, so I'm always curious as to, uh, you know, what we think is going to happen, you know, and and what players are, you know, how you maintain deal deal discipline, especially at a time when other people may not be, which means that it's harder to compete for deals. You know, that's always an interesting question for me for folks who are mm-hmm. investors like you. Yeah, and uh, and and you know, let's put it out there. I think the one that has gotten the most airplay in the last uh, six months is CI Financial. Sure. The CI has come out of nowhere. They've probably done 18 acquisitions or so. Uh, I don't know exactly where they are today, but maybe 60, 65 billion in aggregate assets. And uh, there was a great quote uh, just out very recently by by one of the aggregators saying, "It's like the, they 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 lost the battery in their calculator." Um, so I think. You know, They've surprised people with the sense of urgency they've adopted uh, to coming into the industry. I do think, and some are looking at as a loss of discipline. I would still say that number one, a strategic can pay more than a a financial backed uh, buyer, number one. Number two, I do think that people forget that as a public entity, their, their cost of capital is actually much less. You know, private equity sponsors looking for 20 to 25 percent type annualized returns in the public equity markets. Historically, it was sort of 10 to 12 percent. And I'd say, you know, corporate finance uh, uh, theory seems to suggest that six to eight percent type returns uh, are, are now the new normal. So I think because of lower uh, margin or lower uh, uh, return uh, requirements, they're able to pay more. But it, it, it will be interesting to see uh, for sure. Uh, whether, you know, which side of this debate is right. Yeah, yeah, no question. And it's interesting to me because, you know, one of the things that, you know, I, I all the time, you know, with, with, and I, I know I've had this conversation with, uh, with, with Liz. I know that I've had this conversation with other, you know, where we always talk about every, everybody, every RA firm, almost everyone says that they want to be a buyer, right? You know, hey, Corey, if you know anybody who is looking, we'd love to grow. And, you know, I always have the conversation with them, you know, like, why you, you know, what is your differentiator? Why would they come to you? And, and the fact that you're nice people and you care about your clients is not enough. Right. Um, so that's, you know, that's been a conversation we've had in the industry for a long time, you know, now because the, um, the investment side, whether it's minority investments, whether it's, you know, uh, private equity, whether it's, you know, all the, all these other myriad of options that we've talked about, um, you know, it's getting to the point where, uh, the folks who have money have to distinguish themselves as well. Like, you know, right. Why you over, over someone else, you know? Um, so it's, you know, it's an interesting thing on how, you know, it's like anything else. Listen, when, when you're one of the only one or one of two or three or whatever, it's, 
is enough to go around for everybody. And I'm not saying, I still think there's plenty to go around for everybody in this industry, but it does get to the point where you need to be more differentiated when there's a lot of competition out there, right? Yeah, you know, there's there's one data point that's been out there for the last several years that there's 50 buyers for every seller in the industry. And, you know, I, I feel like that, that stat feels a little high to me. Um, and I read somewhere else that, uh, that only about uh, 20% of buyers actually plan to do more than one acquisition. You know, the rest of them tend to be a lot more opportunistic. But you're absolutely right that the, um, the impetus is really on the buyer to differentiate him or herself about why they are the right party to, uh, to go with. Here again, though, if you're a potential seller, uh, forget if it's 100% majority, minority, you, know, you have the power right now. And on the advisory side, one thing that we would, norm- we would often do uh, with potential sellers is we would actually give them a homework assignment. It would be a survey. We would have all the principals take this survey individually, and then we would roll up the answers to see where there was a, a difference in opinion among uh, various ones. But where we would really get into how important is the brand to you? What is, what is your time horizon in the business? Uh, what, what responsibilities would you like to offload? And the reason we would go through that is once we would come to a consensus about this is the type of partner we want, we can then narrow the field from that 50 or so down to hopefully five to 10 uh, of of partners that really meet your needs. But it can be a bit intimidating if you're a seller right now because there are so many people lined up to take a look at your business. Yeah, and it's sometimes tough for a seller to distinguish between um, the buyers, to distinguish even between the advisors out there, to distinguish between the financing sources. Um, And um, uh, one, because there's just so many options out there, and two, because you know, sometimes it's, you know, it's complex structures and what and what the people pitching them are telling you is, you know, I'm not saying anybody's lying or whatever, but some of these complex structures and they, you know, and you don't really, I mean, I, I remember not, not to get, um, I mean, I, I mentioned focus once, I just have, I just remember early in the focus days, um, you know, they, they had a pretty, you know, a pretty complex structure where they, you know, and, and, and the way that people come to me is say, you know, say, oh, they're buying 50% of my cash flow, And I'd be like, no, they're buying 100% of your firm and then giving you back 50% of your cash flow, give or take in a management contract. Those right. are two very different things. Not bad, not good, right? Just but but under, like that, understand what it is and then figure out whether it'll work for you. And that's true with, with any of them. I mean, you know, just to not pick on focus, you know, Hightower, right, you know, has evolved their model many times. Uh, you know, they have the partner and the affiliate model and people didn't understand that. And then they've evolved it. Now they're doing acquisitions, right? Um, you know, so a lot of the players out there have had different models and, you know, it's it's tough for people to sort through. And, and now there's even, you know, there's multiples of different models out there and many more firms. So it gets confusing. Yeah, it definitely does get confusing. And I'll, I'll put in a little bit of a plug for my good friend, Jeff Concepcion, who runs Stratos. Full disclosure, it's a portfolio company of NCP. But one thing I like about Jeff is when he sits down with somebody and he's relayed these stories to me, um, the uh, the potential seller will sometimes ask him, so what's your deal? You know, what's your structure? And Jeff's answer is, I don't come to you with a, with a cookie cutter structure. I'm here really to understand what your problem is. And then we'll figure out a solution. We'll figure out a structure that, that works for you. I, f- I actually feel like that's a great approach in this in this type of environment. You know, Jeff is also very open about the fact that he'll say, I'm not going to be the highest bidder, but I'm going to be your best buyer. Uh, you know, I'm going to come up with a structure that gives you the most uh, certainty of close um, and it is the best home for your clients. So 
Uh, I happen to like Jeff's uh, approach to it. I'm sure there are many others that are that are doing something similar. Well, listen, you know, I mean, uh, uh, if you made an investment, I'm sure, you know, it's a reason you made an investment, right? <laughs> In Stratus or anywhere else you're going to make an investment. So, you know, it's, it's good that you like what he's doing because I don't think you put your money there if you didn't, right? You know, so I, I get it, you know. Um, so... Any of it just, you know, I mean, listen, you've seen so much in this industry from, you know, all different perspectives, whatever, um, you know, and I'm sure we could speak for hours about lessons learned and things like that. But anything, you know, in this particular time and space, any particular lessons or warnings or, you know, big things that come to your mind that, uh, you know, we should let people know about? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So I, I teach, as you mentioned, at, uh, at Fordham, and I feel like somebody will fix this at some point or figure out a solution, but we need to figure out a way of incentivizing more recent college grads with why wealth management is an attractive industry career to pursue. Yeah. Uh, we all know the statistics about how many advisors are north of 55 versus how many are, are below 30 years old. Um, part of the solution might be uh, creating a real career track for financial planners. You know, why can't we have partners who are really kind of technical focused as opposed to business development focused? We've been able to do that in the accounting industry. We've been able to do that in the legal industry. Yep. And I feel like if we can figure out a way of attracting more young people into this, into this industry, um, independence, the independent RAA channel has, has a long life ahead of it. If we don't, that's when the consolidation wave will really hit. We're 10 years away from... Yep you know, just mass exodus based on demographics of the principles in this industry. Yeah, no question. I mean, listen, you know, um, you know, we talk with our clients about internal succession all the time. And, and obviously, you know, the advisors and investment bankers and consultants do. But, you know, if, if you don't have somebody that you've groomed, you know, <laughs> up internally, you know, then, I mean, we could talk about that as a theoretical option. But if you don't, and I can't tell you how many times I've had clients who, you know, either don't have anybody, well, they have people there, but there's like, they feel like there's nobody who can really, you know, is that kind of person that could take over the phone uh, of the firm. Even as we've saw, I mean, you know, the, the, the other objection used to be a lot, I'm not saying it's still not true, but it's it's dissipated that, that the next gen, you know, never had the money. Now there's so many more financing options to cover that gap that it's really, you know, the, the, the hiring and development and training and, and grooming, you know, of folks, that's the big, the big missing, no question. Yeah, and we've actually structured deals in which uh, NextGen would buy down a piece of the business at a deeply discounted valuation, but then there was a financial sponsor or other capital source that was waiting nearby uh, to buy another, um, another tranche at a higher valuation. Now, you have to separate that with some time, hopefully a, a tax year, so it's right. not disguised compensation. You know more about that than, than anybody on this, uh, on this, on this webcast. Um, but there are ways of uh, transferring some of that equity to second gen by using some outside capital. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a great development in the industry, but, you know, but despite that, you know, there's still fewer internal succession deals than there could be because of the lack of uh, younger folks coming in, in, in the industry. And, and it, which is amazing in a way, because I mean, it's such a great industry, you know, I mean, I, I look at, you know, I look at how well people do all overall and, you know, uh, and, and the longevity that you can have, you know, in the, in the industry, um, you know, you would think, I mean, there's a lot that's attractive, you know, uh, about it. Frankly, 
I got to be honest with you, more attractive than most accounting and legal <laughs> and legal firms, right? <laughs> I can empathize. I've been in both, um, <laughs> and and I think what really is is kind of missed is is sort of the uh, personal satisfaction in wealth management. I mean, especially if you're dealing with individuals. Uh, I mean, you really are making a difference in their life and you're making their retirement possible. And so that's so much more gratifying than, than other career opportunities uh, that unfortunately we, we, uh, we see many young people going into. But uh, like I said, someone's going to figure this out. Uh, but that's, that's really, I think, the real inflection point where the independent channel stays, uh, stays alive long term. Love it. Love it. Um, so before I ask you my final question, um, if people want to find out more about you and your firm and uh, you, maybe your books or everything else you have going on, what, what's, the, what's the best place for them to go? Sure. Well, I'm always available by email. It's a very easy email address to remember. It's peter at nesvold.com. I was a nerd in the 90s, so I bought my name before that became <laughs> fashionable. Um, and uh, on the website, nesvold.com. And if you go to the insights page, I actually post Several times a month, new white papers, webinars, uh, more more advisor education. I, I, as a teacher, I really believe in education. Excellent, excellent. So, Peter, my final question is that my highest value in life is freedom, um, and for me, that means uh, everything from freedom from people from oppression in the world to the reason I'm an entrepreneur and I haven't had a boss in 35, 36 years. <laughs> uh, uh, what does freedom mean to you in, in your life and business? Wow. So uh, the risk of getting super deep, uh, you know, for me, it's uh, financial security and financial independence. Um, you know, it's uh, growing up on a farm, growing up with a, you know, a, a single mom. Um, you know, I, I can identify with your story very much. Um, I grew up in a wealthy community, but we were on, definitely on the, on the wrong side of the tracks. <laughs> and so having that financial independence at this point in my life, I mean, that's invaluable uh, because it just frees the mind from fear. It frees the mind from, you know, any kind of negative thoughts. I can't do something or I can't, I can't afford to take a risk. Once you're able to get rid of that uh, fear of taking a risk, everything is available to you. Love it. Peter, thank you so much for being a guest on the DealQuest podcast. You bet. Thank you, Corey. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the Mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a Mastermind format. To sign up for the free Mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.